0: Amen. If you would, please turn with me to the book of Psalms. We are in Psalm 19 this morning. Next week, actually, we'll take a break from the Psalms for a couple weeks, maybe three weeks. Do something a little topical. In nature. But for today, we're in Psalm 19. And by the way, you may be already aware of this, but the packets, the worksheets are, that are for the kids, those worksheets are actually coincide with the sermon this morning or the passage for the sermon. So I would just encourage, I would encourage families or encourage parents to use it as a fodder for discussion when they are at home And like a strong man, runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever, the rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, I do pray with the psalmist that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart may be acceptable in your sight, O Lord. Father, we pray that your word would accomplish the purpose for which you said it. Lord, feed us with your holy and divinely inspired word this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. C.S. Lewis had once said with regards to Psalm 19, I take this to be the greatest poem in the Psalter and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. C.S. Lewis, himself being a poet, immediately saw, recognized, just the great value of the poetry that is Psalm 19. Now, some of you might be totally uninterested in poetry, but bear with me for a moment. The language of poetry, or the value of poetry, comes in its, from its use of language. It speaks to the language of affections. Poetry is intended to stir your emotions, to get you to feel a certain way, to spark the imagination. But one does not need to be a poet to understand the affectional thrust of Psalm 19. Psalm 19 intends to communicate in in vivid language, and this isn't uncommon in the scriptures, but actually quite common all throughout the scriptures. So take, for instance, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus could have said, get rid of sin by any means necessary. He could have said that, but instead, what does he say? He says, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. To help us to understand that we must be willing to do whatever it takes to get rid of sin. Jesus could have said, Maintain fellowship with me so that you might grow. Instead, he says, Abide in me like a branch abides in the vine and bears fruit. Many places in the Psalms, the psalmist says, I trust in the Lord, but in other places, he says, The Lord is my rock. The Scriptures presents to us different things and presents them in different ways to help us to understand, to bring clarification The value and brilliance of Psalm 19 is its use of the language of affections and the language of of images to help us to see, not with the eyes in our head, but to help us to see with the eyes of our heart. That is, it wants us to see with our entire being. So first, notice the language of creation. The heavens declare the glory of God. And the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. So it says, the heavens declare. The sky above proclaims. It says, day to day pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. So, creation speaks this wordless language to all of humanity. And it's not sort of this muzzled voice. It doesn't speak in the form of a whisper, so that you have to listen pretty attentively and pretty closely to understand what it's saying. But it's not what it says. It declares, it proclaims. In other words, the whole creation preaches, it heralds the glory of God. So, the thunderstorms showcase the power of God. The deepest oceans proclaim the profundity of his knowledge. The vast sky points to God's immensity. The soft breeze tells of God's gentleness. The exploding volcanoes preach God's colossal strength. All of creation is heralding the glory of God. And then the poem narrows its focus on the sun, and then he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs his course with joy. It's rising from the end of the heavens, and a circuits to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. So speaking of the glory of God and all creation, it tells us of the sun. And how does it describe the sun? The sun is like a bridegroom leaving his chamber for what? To go to the altar dressed in sp- the splendor of his joy as he waits to receive his bride. The sun is described like a strong man, like a soldier in the midst of battle who is running his course with joy. So the sun itself. It's like a herald, or you might say even like a town crier, somebody who goes on behalf of the king to the town square, to the downtown of the village, to declare the voice of the king and say, Hear ye, hear ye. This is the day that the Lord has made. And there is no place where the word is not heard, as the heat of the sun and the light of the sun always reaches the earth. So the proclamation of creation reaches all of man and never fails to reach us. And what does this language of creation do for man? Romans 119 tells us, For what can be known about God is plain to them, that is, us, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Notice it says, God's invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature, says, are clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. There is a lot to see about the glory of God by just looking at creation. Day to day pours out this speech. Night to night reveals this knowledge. It's like this constant, steady stream of the glory of God that is poured upon the earth. Day after day, night after night, and man might try to keep himself and his unbelief dry from such pouring out, of this declaration of the glory of God, but it is as pointless as trying to keep yourself dry with an umbrella standing under a heavy waterfall. So it's not that man cannot see. If man proclaims or says that he cannot see, it's not that he cannot see, it's that he fails or refuses to see. So natural revelation, the revelation of God in creation, its usefulness is that it helps us to see who God is. It declares to us that there is a God, that there is a divine creator. And its denial is really just a refusal to believe, a refusal to see. And why does man deny the existence of God? Essentially because to believe in a divine creator, to believe that there is a God, means that our lives are being watched and we are, will be held accountable. So certainly it is easier to believe that there isn't a God that will hold us accountable to our actions and our every word and even the thoughts of our minds. But this isn't primarily about man's unbelief. This is about creation's attempts to get our attention using wordless, wordless language in order to draw us into the reality of God. This is about the declaration of the glory of God through the language of images and creation itself being the language of images. Psalm 19 essentially tells us about two great books, and one of the, those books is the book of creation that reveals the glory of God. So different than a painting. When I used to live in Worcester, there was a great art museum in in Worcester. I would try to go there once in a while because it's only 10 minutes from my house. But one of the reasons why you go to an art museum, obviously, is to look at art. But when you look at art and you stare at it, it's intended to tell us something. Maybe it's intended to stir your emotions, get you to feel a certain way, spark the imagination without using words, or take a photograph, for instance, just looking at one photograph, even taken many years ago, it conjures up images. You think of things. And you feel a certain way just looking at a photograph without the photograph telling you a single word. The entire creation is like a photograph. It's like a painting that declares the glory of God. It's intended to help us to believe and worship the divine creator. John Calvin had once said that when a man from beholding and contemplating the heavens has been brought to acknowledge God, he will also learn to reflect upon and to admire God's wisdom and power as displayed on the face of the earth, not only in general, but even in the minutest plants. Now, as powerful as the language of images is through the medium of creation, there is a greater speech that even the speech or the book of creation is subjected to. Which leads us to, secondly, the power of divine revelation. Psalm 19 points us to a greater word or a greater book going from the book of creation to the book of revelation. And Psalm 19 presents to us the Word as this multifaceted diamond. It presents to us sort of these different images of the Word of God to help us to understand, to clarify for us what the Word of the Lord is. Right, says calls it the law of the Lord the testimony of the Lord, the precepts of the Lord, the commandment of the Lord, the fear of the Lord, the rules of the Lord. And each time, of the Lord, of the Lord, of the Lord, of the Lord, this is his word. Not only is this word sort of a multifaceted diamond, but it's also multifaceted in its effect. When one heeds it and believes in it and lives by it. First, it tells us that the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. This is a word that cannot be contested, a word that is not lacking. When the Israelites were given instructions on what a presentable or acceptable offering is to the Lord, I believe in Leviticus 22, he clearly outlines what an acceptable offering is, something that isn't lacking, something without blemish. This is the same idea here, that the word of the Lord is perfect, that it is not lacking in anything that it, te- it has to teach us. And that, it, is, that it, re- it, it revives the soul. The word there is actually intended to mean sort of a, a turning again. So, In other words, the word of the Lord is what brings us to God. The book of creation declares the glory of God. The book of Revelation, the book of the word of the Lord, tells us how to get right with God. And here we begin to see the value of this divine word. It is this word that restores our relationship with God, a relationship that has been severed because of our sins and unbelief and deserving of the judgment of God. This word restores us by pointing us to Jesus Christ, who is the Savior who died on the cross and rose again from the dead so that all who believe in him might be then adopted as sons and daughters of God. And this is a word that continues to revive us, continues to feed us. Moses writes in Deuteronomy three, And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, so that he might make you know. That man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. We want the word of the Lord. We want to open his book because this is how we are fed, this is how we are restored. It tells us that the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple meaning it is firmly fixed. God gave a promise to King David that he will build for him a sure house, meaning a house that will endure from generation to generation to generation unto forever. That's what it means when he built him a a sure house. That God has said it, God has declared it, God has built built it, and nothing can change it. So the word of the Lord is fixed. There's no adding to it. There's no taking away from it. It is not going to ever pass away. God is not like a politician running for office who makes many promises and once in office fails to deliver on those promises. No, the word of God always stands true and his promises, as his own word says, are yes and amen in him. And the one who takes the Lord at his word grows wiser. Right? Don't we want to be wiser that we must feed on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, because his word is true and is firmly fixed, and it will endure forever. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. That is, the word of the Lord is without error. It always teaches the truth. It is never wrong about the truth. It is never lacking with regards to the truth. And it rejoices the heart. Psalm 1, verse 1, speaks of this joy the person who delights in the Lord. Blessed the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. Psalm 1 speaks of the person who loves the instructions of the Lord. Now, As human beings, who in our nature are sinful, right, we don't like to be told what to do. But setting that aside for a moment, just thinking more about personality-wise, some people thrive without instructions, right? They like to be just given a project and just said, here, have at it, take it, complete it. How you get there is up to you, and people thrive in that kind of situation. There are some people who don't thrive in that kind of situation. Some people require steps you need to know exactly what the expectations are what direction they're headed know what exactly to do and people thrive in that kind of scenario the people of the lord are the form are the ladder we are to be people of the word and we rejoice in the word because the word is what instructs us is what teaches us and what commands us Because left to ourselves, there is no way that we could ever figure it out. How to live in a manner that is pleasing to the Lord. So God's people rejoice in the word of the Lord because the word of the Lord is what teaches us how to live in a manner that pleases our Heavenly Father. The commandment of the Lord is pure enlightening the eyes. The word of the Lord is without blemish. It is without stain. It never encourages sin or commands sin, but it is holy, it is right, it is true. And it enlightens the eyes. The scriptures teach us that those who are without faith in the Lord Jesus walk in darkness. Yes, they can see with their physical eyes, But the eyes of their hearts are blind to the reality of God and they cannot find their way in the darkness. And the scriptures warn that those who walk in darkness will ultimately end up under the wrath and judgment of God. But the word of the Lord enlightens the eyes. It is the light unto our path that helps us to know how to walk the narrow path that leads to the Lord. It helps us to know how to live in a manner that pleases the Lord. The word of the Lord is like wearing a pair of glasses to fix our blurred vision. It helps us to see the reality of God. It helps us to see the world through a different perspective, through a different light. So that is the value of the Word. And we would do well to put on the pair of glasses each and every day. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The word of the Lord is not defiled or mixed with anything else. You and I, because we don't always have all the knowledge, understanding, and wisdom, sometimes we go to others and we ask for advice. We ask for wisdom, for understanding to help us, to guide us. But the Lord is not man that he should consult anyone else. The Lord didn't need someone's opinions. The Lord never came to a point in all of time and said to himself, I don't really know what to do in this situation. Let me go consult with these idols. Consult with man. Let me consult with these angels. No, God does not anyone to consult him, or give him advice, or give them their opinion, or give them their knowledge, because God is all knowing, and He's comprehensive in His knowledge. So it's not defiled or mixed with anyone else's wisdom or guidance. And it is a word that will endure forever, as Jesus says in Matthew twenty-four thirty-five: Heaven and earth will pass away. But my words will not pass away. And to sum it all up, the rules of the Lord are true, and they are righteous all together. This shows us the supremacy of the divine word, and it's for these reasons that we should be desirous of the Word. There is more to be desired are the words of the Lord than gold even much fine gold sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb moreover by them is your servant warned and keeping them there is great reward the reason why the psalm is written in the way that it's written is because it is after your heart which is always the scripture's aim from beginning to end, from book to book, from chapter to chapter, the Lord's aim is always after your heart and my heart. He doesn't just want our intellect, but he wants all of us. Because as Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus wants to find that our hearts treasure him more than anything else and treasure his word. The psalm serves to whet our appetite for the word of the Lord, that it is treasurable, that it is savory. The intention of this psalm is to get us to say what the psalmist says later on in Psalm 119, where he says, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Do you love the word of the Lord? Can you affirm, can you echo what the psalmist says? And it becomes even more delightful when we consider what the New Testament says about the word. John 1 verse 1 In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John fourteen eight. Philip, a disciple of Jesus, said to the Lord Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? the book of creation is intended to point us to God the creator. And the scriptures also tell us that Jesus, who is the divine word of God, who is the son of God, also points us to the Father. And because the scriptures also point us to Jesus, the word word is our anchor. The Word is our sustenance. The Word is our support. The Word is our help in time of need. It is the Word that will always point us to the Father, will always point us to Jesus Christ. And by the Word of the Lord, we are warned and rewarded Speaks to us of how delightful the word of the Lord is in comparison to the delightful things of the world and even the treasures of the world. William Plummer, a preacher, writes sort of the contrast, the value of the word, in contrast to what wealth can bring or cannot bring. Wealth can heal no wounded spirit, cheer no sinking soul, wealth can give cannot give hope to the desponding mind. Defend against none of the worst ills of life, point no weary traveler to the way of rest, wealth can give no assurance of happiness beyond the grave. God's word can do all these things a thousand times more. When it comes to the word of the Lord, we should be gluttons for the word of the Lord, always digesting, always feeding of the word, always desirous of the word, always hungering for the word of the Lord. Because it ought to be our greatest treasure. People spend their lives looking for the things that satisfy them. The Christian, they already have it. And it's right here in God's holy book. Ultimately, the reason why we should desire the word and treasure the word of the Lord is because it is the word of the Lord that will ultimately get us to God. The person who continually digests and treasures the Word of God is a kind of person who, third and lastly, lives the Godward life. When we come to the Word and see what the Word is intended to do, reviving us, making us wise, rejoicing the heart, enlightening us, and one of the things that we cannot help but conclude is how much we fail to measure up. So when we consider the Word of the Lord, it brings us to a state of humility, or it should bring us to a state of humility where we humbly confess our sins to the Lord and ask for His forgiveness. It's a prayer of confession. It's a prayer of forgiveness. But it's also a prayer of preservation here. New Testament teaches us that sanctification is certainly a work of the Spirit of God. The Spirit works in us to make us more and more like Jesus Christ, and one of the chief means he uses is the Word of the Lord. But it's not a work of the Spirit alone, but it is also man's work as well. Man works hand in hand with the Spirit to pursue this life of sanctification, this growing conformity to the image of Jesus Christ. But I think it is also more than appropriate to also to pray, Lord, keep me from sinning against you. Keep me from these hidden faults, these sins that I'm not even aware of. Lord, keep me from these presumptuous sins, these sins that are these high-handed sins, these sins that I know are sins but I do anyway. Lord, preserve me, keep me from disobeying you. and it concludes, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. He could mean just the wordy words of his psalm that they might be acceptable to the Lord, but I think it's much broader than that. Just like the offerings that God demanded in the Old Testament and they had to be acceptable and he defined what acceptable was, the psalmist's concluding prayer is that his life be an acceptable offering to the Lord. Should we not desire the same thing? Should you not desire to present your life as an acceptable offering to the Lord? Should you not desire to be among the children that Jesus will one day present before the Father? Should you not desire to present to God the fruit of your life? and hear Him say, Well done, good and faithful servant. Come and enter into the joy of your Master. The word of the Lord are His letters to us by which we can come to know Him and how to live rightly before Him. Let me share just one quick thing before concluding. To those of you who are here and might think, you know what, I want to hunger for the word of the Lord, but I just don't. I want it, but I don't have it. A couple things that I will say to that is, it's better to read the word out of duty than to not read it at all. I know that sometimes there are seasons where reading the Word and being in the Word seems more like a duty and it's, there's no delight in it. But it's better to do it out of duty than to not do it at all. Be in the Word. You need the Word more than you realize. Just assume that all the days of your life. You need it more than you realize. More than you will ever comprehend. More than you will ever know. You and I need the Word Desperately. And even though there are times when, yes, we read the Word and it feels like there's nothing there, there's nothing really in your heart that's changed, reading the Word is like taking a daily vitamin. You take the vitamin, you don't necessarily feel all that different, but you trust that it's having some kind of effect. God's Word says that his Word always accomplishes the purpose for which He sent it. In those seasons, in those days, when reading the Word is, just feels like a duty than it is a delight, remember that promise. Take the daily vitamin of the Word and trust in His promise that God will accomplish His purpose in and through the Word. You may not necessarily feel it in that moment. You may not necessarily feel any different a week later or two weeks later. But trust that the Lord is using His Word and massaging it to your heart and working it for your good. Day to day pours out speech of the glory of God. And day to day, we have access to God's divine revelation of Himself, and that is through His Word. Day to day, we can have the speech of the Lord poured into our hearts and our minds, our very lives, if we would only just pick it up and read it. Seek to know it. Seek to study it. Seek to meditate upon it. Seek to memorize it. Seek to be mastered By the word of the Lord. It is more to be desired than gold and sweeter than honey, because the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Let's pray. Lord, we desire to be a people of the Word. Lord, would you help us to center our lives in the Word? Or rather, Lord, help us to be like the planets that revolve around the sun. Lord, may our lives continue to revolve around your Word and to never replace it with something else. Lord, we pray for those who find it to be only a duty more than a delight to be in your word. Lord, we pray for your grace. We pray that you might help them to diligently go to your word. And God, we pray that the delight will follow, cause their hearts to yearn more for your word and to find joy in what your word says. Help us by your spirit to continue to walk in a manner that pleases you by continually, by continually grounding ourselves in your holy and divinely inspired word. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Amen, church. Let's stand and worship one more time in response to today's message. much fitting song, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer.